to the, the sermon, I do just want to take a moment to pray again. I um, want to kind of give you guys a brief update. Actually, while we were practicing this morning, my wife called me, and she doesn't call me on Sunday mornings. We obviously have had several hours together. And uh, she called me to let me know that her dad collapsed while he was teaching Sunday school. And, um, of course, you know, he's, I know some of you guys got a chance to see her when she dropped off Zach and Zoe. Um, he, so as you think about them, Teresa, Danielle's sister, Fletcher's daughter, is on our prayer list. Um, he's, of course, pouring out his life to care for her. He's also been the guardian of his cousin whom he just buried this week, and he's still the guardian for his, his aunt, his cousin's mom, who's in her 90s, also suffering from dementia. Um, and so as you think about it, just be praying for them. Um, apparently he woke up after, after collapsing, but is down at Suburban, and, and so um, anyways, I don't know exactly what's going on, but as you think about it, be praying for them. Um, but I just figured I'd let you guys know, because if my mind goes off, that's why. Let me pray for us as we dive into the Word together. Father, we know that you are sovereign over all things. We don't always understand why you do the things that you do, why you allow the things you allow, but we trust in your goodness, in your love, in your grace, in your strength. And the Father, I pray for Fletcher this morning. I pray that you would... Um, be his strength and his shield. Be his ever-present help in this time of need. Father, for Nancy and for the other girls, we pray that you would be their comfort as well. Lord, we pray for wisdom on what changes need to be made in their lives as they continue to seek to care for Teresa and care for the other people that you've called them to care for. Lord, they have poured their lives out so readily, even as Paul said, like a drink offering on your altar. So God, we pray for your grace and strength in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would grant me the mind to focus on what you've called us to. Lord, give us ears to hear what your word has to say. Give us a heart to understand what your spirit is conveying to us. Father, speak, we pray, for your servants are listening. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in the passage that Dan read, and uh, we're going to be talking about life as a Christian. And in doing that, I want to ask the question, we're going to ask lots of questions this morning, but one is, what does it cost to follow Jesus? What does it cost to follow Jesus? Jesus wasn't really directly answered that question, but at one point in time in his ministry, he responded with these words from Mark 8, 34. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor um, and an author and a spy during World War II, he uh, wrote a couple of books, and difference between cheap grace and true discipleship by stating that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. 
It's cheap, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see, Jesus paid for our salvation with his life and offers salvation freely to us as a gift. That's something hopefully that is conveyed every week as we gather together. It is a free gift of salvation. You've been saved by grace through faith, and that is not of yourselves. But receiving that gift has a cost. It should result in some change in our lives. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks in, in looking at 1 Thessalonians, we've, we've seen the way that Paul has been grateful and very encouraging to this body of people who, who after just three short weeks of hearing the gospel and being discipled as quickly as Paul could disciple them and then receiving some intense persecution, so much so that they said, Paul, you got to go. We need, a, we need a break from this. And even after Paul and his friends left, that persecution didn't let up. And so, but Paul was encouraged by what he could see in this authentic and genuine faith that didn't buckle under the weight of this persecution. But as we briefly noted last week, Paul also saw some areas in their lives, based on Timothy's report, where he needed to correct some things that they were doing, some of their thinking and some of their practices. And as we dive into to 1 Thessalonians 4 today, we're going to begin to see Paul address some of those concerns as we get to what one commentator called some, some things dealing with Christian behavior. Not only what it means to be a Christian, but now how do Christians act? And so as we go through this, I want us to really ask two main questions. One is, what is God's will for me? And the second how can I live out God's will? Because it seems like in this passage, Paul is really pointing these two things out. He's saying, this is God's will for you, and this is how you should live it out. So we're going to begin. Let's ask that first question together. If you want to take notes in your outline, here's the first blank, and that is, what is God's will for me? And I think this is the question that a lot of people ask. A lot of people inquire, what is God's will for me as a job? What is God's will for me in response to this difficulty? What is God's will for me in, in, in my dating life? Or who, who is God's will that I would marry? And we ask this question, and, and yet it's, it's so interesting. Time and time again, Scripture does tell us this is God's will for you. Elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians, it is, Paul tells them it is God's will that you give thanks in all circumstances. In 1 Peter, he says, um, in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Elsewhere in 1 Peter, it says that the will of God is suffering in the flesh in a battle against sin. So there are a few times when, when, when um, the... the Apostles will write and tell us, this is God's will for you. And yet so often it's not always the things that we're hoping God would say. But here in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul answers with a very simple reply. This is God's will for you. Sanctification. Sanctification. If you look in your copy of God's word in, in the first three verses, Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we're going to get to that second part, but it kind of begs the, another question. What is sanctification? This is one of those big words that we just don't often use outside of church circles. What is sanctification? It, very simply, it's the idea that something is set apart, something is set aside for a specific purpose. It is set aside as holy and unique, offered unto God. In the Old Testament, God sanctified the seventh day, the Sabbath. He said, this day is holy. You shall do no work. Don't do any of the ordinary vocational things that you would do. Rest, worship, be set apart on that day. God sanctified the people of Israel and called them to continual holiness. He said, I've called you to be holy as I am holy. But it's interesting, as, as I was thinking about it this week, it seems like there are three elements to sanctification. The first is really a designation that, that someone has to say, this is holy. It's a declaration that, this, that something is holy. As I said, God declared the Sabbath holy. It's the one day of the week that is set apart for him, even though he created all seven days. God designated the people to be holy. And even certain people more holy, the priests, the Levites, other people who are called to go before the Lord to intercede for the people. Now, let me kind of make a little crude illustration. Some time ago, I got this Yeti. We have a lot of Yetis around the house. We like coffee. We fill up a whole pot and oftentimes drink it multiple times throughout the day. But this has been designated as my Yeti. It has been declared my, it's been sanctified. This is Joel's Yeti, okay? So if, if it happens to be in someone else's hand, they would then assume that they have permission from Joel to drink out of this Yeti. If the Yeti is not where I last put it, something is wrong with this Yeti, with the people who might have moved it. But so in this case, it's not to say that other people can't use it. It's just people in my household know that this is my Yeti. Melody's got one that's a little darker red. Danielle has one that's pink. Zach and Zoe have multiples, um, all sorts of different colors because they like to put stickers on them. And we know that those have been sanctified for Zach and Zoe. But there's another element to this, and that is not only has it been designated or declared, if you will, sanctified as Joel's Yeti, but it also is identified. So when you see this with me, you know, hey, this is Joel's Yeti. When you see it with someone else, you think, isn't that Joel's Yeti? It shouldn't be in those hands. It's now been corrupted because it's not in Joel's hands. Um, because other people, and now all of you, identify this as Joel's Yeti. So if you see it somewhere, you know. And it's very plain. But there's a third element to this. And that is association. So you have the designation that this is, the identification that other people recognize that this is mine, or we are holy, or we are set apart. But there's the last part, and that is association. You would expect this cup to be associated with me because it's sanctified as mine. In the same way for us, as we are designated, declared holy because of Jesus Christ, as Christians, now we're beginning to act holy. We're beginning to be around other people. And other people can say, yes, I identify that that is a Christian, that that, that person follows Jesus. And now there's the idea of association. You would expect Christians to associate with each other in certain ways. Does that make sense? 
So it's one thing for it to be declared. We know that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he made a way for us to be declared holy. He justified us and took the punishment for our sins. So now we've been set apart as holy. And now in this process of learning and growing, we're beginning to identify more and more with the things that honor Jesus. And we're beginning to be associated with things that most people will say, yeah, that's what Christians do. The challenge becomes when people associate or when we associate things that are unbiblical with, in our lives. And I think that's one of the things that Paul is pointing out here. Remember, this, this society, and we're going we're gonna to get to this in a minute, but this, this, this society in which the Thessalonians lived was a very debaucherous society. So imagine what it would be like to hear the gospel preach. Someone says, hey, you have a sin problem, and Jesus did something to save you from your sin problem. Now, how do you live in that? Do you keep on sinning because your sins are covered? Do you keep on doing all these other things that identified you as a Thessalonian or identified you as an unbeliever? Or or what are these new things? And so Paul, because he didn't have enough time when he was there, he went back. Now he's going back and saying, this is how you become sanctified. This is how you live in God's will, which is really the next question we're going to get to. How can I live out God's will? And there, there are a lot of areas that, that Paul could address, and there are a lot of things that Paul could get to. And we could read the entire New Testament and see various things that would really point to ways in which we are sanctified. But here, Paul is addressing something that is very impactful in their area. And I'm, uh, spoiler alert, this is going to get a little bit sensitive because the thing that Paul is addressing in their lives is sexual purity is sexual purity. He's basically saying, your sanctification will come in sexual purity. In their culture, the things that we might call sexually or sexual immorality, they were central. <clears throat> there, was, there was sexual uh, activity related to worship of various deities, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. There were temple prostitutes, and there were all these things that would happen around the, the worship, the pagan worship that they had. But in addition to that, Fidelity within a family, while it was generally seen as wise, was not expected. Now, how would you like to live? Never mind, I'm not going to ask that question. In that culture, when a man and a woman got married, it was expected, demanded that the woman be faithful in that marriage. The woman couldn't stray at all. The man could. He could have mistresses, he could have girlfriends over here, he could have boyfriends, he could do whatever. But the woman had to remain pure, faithful in this marriage. That was just their culture. Generally, they thought, yeah, you should be faithful, but it's okay if you're not. It was unfair. It was unfair that they lived that way. And yet that's what they grew up with. So now imagine what it would be like. You're, you're a, a Christian husband. You're a brand new baby Christian. You and your wife are there and, and you're used to doing all these other things and you continually do all these other things because you don't know any better. And Paul is saying, this is God's will for you. Your sanctification, be sexually pure. So he's calling them to this Purity. In fact, look at what it says in verses 3 to 8 in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he encourages them to abstain from sexual immorality. And that is, in case we're unclear, that is any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. Scripture would say, here is the safe bounds, here is the God-ordained bounds that, that sexual activity should happen and is only in the covenant of marriage. But notice that his motiva- what his motivation is. He said his motivation is holiness and honor. His holiness is honor. Oh, his, his motivation is holiness and honor. He's, he's not telling them to do this because this is the Jewish way. He's not even telling them to do this because this is the Christian way. He's telling them to do this because this is God's way. This is God's will for them. This is God's will for us. When we think about that idea of holiness, and we've sung a lot about holiness this morning, we have to think about it this way, that we've been saved. It's not just our souls that have been saved. Yeah, Jesus died to save you from so that you might be, have eternal life with him. Jesus declared us and designated us holy and sanctified us. But now as we begin to be identified with him as holy, when we receive this free gift of faith, now we have to act like it. Now we have to own it, own that holiness that God, that Jesus purchased for us. Paul is calling them and he's calling us to to be associated as holy by their actions. This cup, this vessel of our bodies now belongs to God. And we need to treat these bodies the way that God ordained them to be treated. But there's a second thing that he says. It's not just holiness, but it's honor. It's honor. And so so much of our society and even their society would say, if it feels good, do it. If you find pleasure in it, then you should go ahead and do it. Do what makes you happy. Live your best life now. And yet Paul is telling them, no, you've been called to honor. Honor. Sexual purity is not, not only honors or shows respect for our own bodies, but it's a way of honoring the other person's body. And more importantly, honoring God. Now, I I can only imagine how radical this teaching would have been for them. And frankly, in our culture today, it's probably pretty radical. For most of us, we've grown up in and around church. But I want us to think about what are our cultural norms? What are the things that our society is saying in light of now what we're hearing from the Word of God? Because think about this. Before marriage, our society would say, go ahead and sleep with whoever you want to. Go ahead and do that. Pornography is normalized and even celebrated as art. It's not seen as as negative. It's seen as it's just part of life. Within marriage, yeah, fidelity in our culture is generally expected. Open marriage is an option for some. Pornography may be tolerated and even accepted inside of marriage. But adultery, while it's still looked down upon, is kind of normalized, especially if you follow all the celebrity stuff that's happening in Hollywood or in Washington, D.C. So in this area of our sexual purity, our sanctification, we are being called to something more, something better, something 
countercultural. And so I need to ask us the question, how are we doing? How are we doing? Students and singles, let me encourage you not to fall into, this, into the sexual trap that our society is laying for you. Reserve yourself for the one that God has appointed for you in marriage. You will be so much more happy not having all that history, not having all those memories, not having all of that experience. Our society... Here's, here's the big difference. Our society has limited sex to just our physical beings. Our society said this is just your physical expression. It's a pleasure to be enjoyed or at least experienced. But in making sex part of our sanctification, God views it as something more. In fact, Tim Keller, in a series he did on marriage, commented that it is designed to be a place where a woman and a man can be completely naked together and not just physically. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, no secrets, one. One. That is God's design. That is God's beautiful design. So let me encourage you. Reserve your eyes, your mind, and your bodies. The trap of pornography is that we assume that it's only affecting us individually but we have to recognize how it affects how we view other people as well. So whether you're single or married, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Couples, how is your thought life? How, where are your eyes? But for all of us, I think that we need to repent where we have fallen into this trap. We can't blame society. Oh, that's just the way things are when we are culpable. We do need to repent, and we need to be careful with what we are allowing onto our phones, our computers, our televisions, into our eyes and ears. We need to live to a higher standard because we have been called to be holy. And we need to be praying for each other in this. We often think that Um, Some forms of sexual promiscuity, especially voyeurism or pornography, is just personal. But Paul seems to communicate here that it impacts others. In fact, look at verse 6. He he says, and, and a lot of commentators looked at this and they're like, what is Paul really saying here? Verse 6, he says, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned. It seems like what Paul is saying is that when we are are sexually immoral, when we're getting outside of God's good design, that we are committing a sin against our brothers and sisters. We are committing, and, and God is the one who pays attention to that. God is the one who will avenge. So I want to encourage us, let's swim feverishly against the currents of our culture and live lives of holiness by reserving our sexual experiences for the spouse that God has called us to covenant with. And in talking about this element of our holiness and sanctification, several commentators noted that Paul seems to have this pattern that mirrors the great commandment. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 22, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in this area of our sanctification, it seems odd to think about it this way, but Paul's motivation is saying in sexual purity, in avoiding sexual immorality, this is an act of worship to God. God designed us this way. Let's live in the way that he designed. It's a worship of God. It impacts our relationship with him. But then he begins to move to another element of our sanctification as he challenges us to pursue familial love. Familial love or brotherly love. This is the the Greek word Philadelphia. Okay, we can all, we can take a break. This deep sigh, all the sex talk is done. But the idea here in verses 9 to 10 is that um, this familial love, this brotherly love, this Philadelphia is a love that in Greek culture they would normally only talk about among family members, among blood relatives. And yet Jesus says, no, you are demonstrating, not Jesus, Paul says, you are demonstrating this in the body of Christ. Look at what it says in verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. There is something that the Thessalonians were doing that could be commended. Everybody around Macedonia knew the Thessalonians were people of brotherly love, and they didn't even live in Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. Their love for each other and for other believers was celebrated throughout the region. And so Paul encourages them, keep it up. And you see, outside of the church, this brotherly or familiar love, as I said, was really only talked about among families. And yet in the church, we've been united with one another with something stronger than blood relations with the blood of Christ. So we are family in this. And I think this is something that was at the heart of Jesus as well. On the night before he was crucified, he told his disciples in John 13, 35, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If our sexual purity is a means of demonstrating a bit of our sanctification and holiness, our love for each other continues to identify us more and more with Christ. I was so encouraged this week. When I spoke with Pete and Jackie, I called them up because they'd been sick and just called to check in on how they're doing. And they were very quick to say, our family here at church has been caring for us well. They've been reaching out. They've been doing various things. And so I want to celebrate and encourage you. Thank you for showing brotherly love. Thank you for showing this familial love. We need to keep doing that. That is what the body of Christ is called to do. But there's a, a final thing that Paul seems to be instructing the Thessalonians with as, as, as he encourages them to live out the will of God, and that is with a consistent walk. He concludes this section with an encouragement and instruction with a discussion on, on how we should live. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, and, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be dependent upon no one. There are times when it can be real enticing, real tempting for some of us to want to do great big things for God, to want to get out there and and make a big splash for the kingdom of God and just do something. Oh, and if we get a little name out of it, that's pretty cool too. 
But I think it's what we have to recognize is that for most of us, God's assignment for us will not necessarily be in big and famous and impactful things. God's assignment for us is a life of daily consistency. It's in the ordinary. It's in the mundane. Zach Eswine has said, almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. Small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. Normal and ordinary may seem boring until we take time to realize the beauty that God has fashioned into the ordinary. The beauty of the changing of seasons. The beauty of watching bees and and hummingbirds flit around flowers. The beauty of watching trees bud. The beauty of watching birds fly. The beauty of watching people grow and change. I think we should dream and pray for big and extraordinary things. But not if it compromises a consistent life. I believe God is most pleased when we live faithfully in the small things. And so Paul seems to apply this in three different areas. In the first one, you can see it there in the text. He, he, he encourages them with a, to live out God's will with a consistent and quiet life. For, how many of you guys are introverts? How many of us are introverts? Where you prefer kind of being alone, being a little bit quiet? No, some of you aren't. So introverts, this is an encouragement for you. God says to live a quiet life. And we're thinking, yes, right? This is exactly what I want. God wants me to live a quiet life. Yes, I want to be quiet. Extroverts, that's not saying that you should live a life other than what God has called you to live. It's not that you should be quiet. But I think what this is, is God's calling us to live a life that doesn't seek to draw attention to ourselves. It's a faithful life that's willing to live the way that God has gifted us, whether introverted or extroverted, willing to work and do the things that God has called us to. But secondly, he he says that we need to live a consistently content life, minding our own affairs. You know, in the oversharing of our social media-saturated culture, it's easy to be people who want to be up on the latest gossip, want to know the latest things that are happening in Hollywood or in that person's life or someone else's life, so we have something to talk about, right? But Paul seems to be urging the Thessalonians and us to be people who live and work with and worry within the sphere of influence that God has given us. Ultimately, we have the most influence in our own lives, in our own families, and we should be content to mind those affairs. And then yet even here as the body of Christ, that should extend a bit to the family here. We should mind our our affairs together and be willing to help. But but also we should should live with consistent and a a hard-working life. You see, in that culture, some people weren't working because they heard that Jesus was coming back soon. And so they said, why should I work if Jesus is coming back? Let me just take it easy. And we're going to get to that a little bit next week. But So some of these guys weren't working. And then other people got into a system. There was a, a weird patronage system where they could come alongside and maybe serve people or just be a patron to some rich dude. Which would be cool. I mean, wouldn't that be a fun way to live if someone else paid all your bills and you could just sit back and and, and have a relaxing time. 
Paul's saying, no, I want you to work hard. I want you to work diligently. I want you to put your hands to good work. Be dependent upon no one. But then I, I find it interesting that Paul provides a little motivation for this. He says, you're to do this because of, you're to do this as, a, one of your motivations should be your walk, that your walk be proper before outsiders. Not living to please others, but living to witness to others. But also, he says, so that you can be independent, self-sufficient. Not so much boot, the bootstrap mentality that we have as a society, but being willing to, to be good stewards of all that God has given us and working diligently in that. I was listening recently to uh, the book Hiding Place, which is by Tor- Corey Ten Boom. She was a, a lady. I kind of mentioned her a couple weeks ago. She was a lady who grew up in the Netherlands right before World War II. And I found it interesting. God ended up calling Corey to do some very big, wonderful things. But it's interesting, in the way that those things came about wasn't because he said, Corey, this is my big will for you. It came in this way. Corey, this is my little, boring, ordinary will for you. Throughout the book, I found it so interesting that her dad, she lived with her dad. She never married. Her dad was a watchmaker, and so... Um, it, it, the watch shop had been in their family for uh, over 100 years by the time World War II came around. But, but every morning around 8, 8.15, Dad would come downstairs and he would open up his Bible at the breakfast table. All the employees would come in and he would read one chapter from the Word of God. It was just the expectation. You're going to work in my shop. You're going to sit down at my table and you're going to hear the Word of God. He would pray, close the book, and they'd go about their day. At the end of the day, in the evening, after dinner, just before 9 o'clock, dad would come out, open his Bible again. He'd read another chapter, pray, and everybody would go to bed. That was just the daily life. And Corey and her sister and, and her other siblings, they, when they grew up in that culture, they grew up doing that. And then, then after mom died, Corey and her sister stayed with dad, and they continued to care for him and, and do all these things together as a family, growing the business, doing interesting things. But then as World War II began to come around, she and her dad used to go for walks. And and she noticed one day that this guy that normally they would see with a dog didn't have the dog there. And so they followed him. They began to figure out, well, what's going on here? You see, this man was Jewish. And Jewish people at that time weren't getting ration cards, so they couldn't eat and so they had to get rid of the dog because the dog they didn't have food for the dog and themselves but she began to see more and more how Jewish people were being treated unjustly so this shop owner when when the Gestapo went in and began taking everything he grabbed his bags and came out and Corey said come on in we've got a place for you in here and so she put up that person and put up another person and put up another person and her house started getting to fold that she began finding other places for all these people to do things. And it's just in these faithful. And every morning people would sit there and they'd open the word of God together and read it. They'd pray. They'd go about their day. They'd run little drills to make sure that if, if someone came in at the door who wasn't expected, like the police, that they knew how to get out. Eventually they had to build a secret room in the house so that all of the guests, all of the Jewish guests who weren't supposed to be there could, could hide in safety. And all of that happened. She did some amazing things. 
Eventually, she was arrested in the final year of the, year of the war. Um, her dad died within two weeks of being arrested. Her sister died about three days before Corey was released between Christmas and New Year's. And Corey finally got out. And God allowed her to continue to care for people. He, he did open up a door of ministry. He allowed her to speak and encourage other people. But because she did those faithful, little, boring, consistent, ordinary things all of her life. Beloved, God's will for us is sanctification, is growing in holiness. And Paul, as he challenged us, said, this involves your sexual purity. It's not fun to talk about that, but it's important. But it also involves living a consistent life. Doing the things that God has called us to. Showing familial love. And so, friend, I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're simply checking all this out, I want to encourage you to consider the beauty of God's design. He made you for more than temporary pleasures. He has made you for His glory and provided a means through the cross of Jesus Christ for you to be in a right relationship with Him. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, repent, receive Jesus' free gift, and walk in that newness of life. And I know I, I often say, you know, if... if I'd love to get together and talk about it this week, but I want to encourage you. There's a simple way that you can do this. I know we kind of like to be private people. In fact, we've been told to live a quiet life. Right? So here's a very easy, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, let me show you how, to, how you can do something very quietly. Okay, everybody take out your bulletin because this is the loudest part. Right? On the count of three, we're going to rip off this page. Ready? One. Y'all have it? One, two, three. Okay, that was the loudest thing. Now, here's the thing. If you notice on one side, it says, please send me information on becoming a Christian, becoming a member, community groups, kids and youth ministry, meeting with a pastor or elder. If you're not yet a follower of Christ and you would like to know, like to talk about this, then let me encourage you to write your name on the top, phone number, email or something, and check that little box. That doesn't make you a Christian, but that just lets me know we need to have a conversation. We need to have a conversation. And, and if you are a follower of Christ, if, if any of those other things, becoming a member, joining a community group, interest you, go ahead and mark that on there. Put it in the offering box at the back on your way out. And I'd love to be able to talk through what some of these things mean. But may we be people who honor God with our bodies, with our minds, with our eyes, that we might walk and live in holiness in the sanctification that God has called us to. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for...